A Pan-American Boeing 707 is charging down the runway in Sydney, Australia when popping sounds are heard, what caused the plane to abort takeoff and eventually overrun the runway. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And filling in for Nick, I'm Brendan. Welcome back, friends. You you made it. Another episode. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> or if it was your first episode, excellent. Please, please don't. You got some catching up to do. <laughs> yeah. That being said, this is the third part of our four-part miniseries. If this is the first episode you're tuning in, please back up two episodes. Yes, please. please. And thank you. If you listened to the last one, that was pretty crazy. Right? Yep. Yeah. If you binged it, you're like, give me more. <laughs> I think the only thing we have is... This week we are recording our listener story. Yeah. Today, when you are hearing this, if you are listening the day it came out. We do need more stories. Pretty pleased. We only have two so far. If you are hearing this, please send in a summer vacation story for the listener episode. You can send that in on our website, or you can email it to us directly if that is your preference. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But we need more, so please send more. Okay, I think that's everything. That's it. Nice and nice and quick so far. Yep. So what are we covering today, Brendan? We are covering Pan Am Flight Eight One Two, the first one of these accidents on Pan Am Eight One Two. Yeah, because there's two. Thank you to Joseph for recommending this episode. If you look up this flight, don't go to that Wikipedia page. That is the wrong Pan Am Flight Eight One Two. Yes. This one does not have a Wikipedia. Wikipedia page as of June 2021. This accident, unlike the other one, other 812, occurred on December 1st, 1969. It was a Boeing 707 registration November 8, 902 Papa Alpha. At the time, it was less than nine months old. Wow. Wow. Newer airplane. Nice brand new. Welcome to the jet age because it was powered by four remounted jet engines. Mm. Ooh. Mm. This is a regularly public transport flight direct from Sydney, Australia to Honolulu, Hawaii in the United States. Wow. Which actually, if I remember correctly, is not that far. It's pretty far. It is a nine-hour flight. Oh, that's not bad. Before before this, they couldn't make it on their little turbo prop Props, engine. Props, so. yeah. It was the first time they could do direct. Yes. Dang. All right, let's get into the flight crew. Settle down here. There's quite a few of them. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> the aircraft was under the command of Captain Wayne Paulson. I assume that's how you say that. Age 54, 24,856 hours, of which 7,656 hours had been gained in the Boeing 707 aircraft type. Is that how they worded it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Next, we have First Officer Jan Minky. He is age 33 at the time of the incident. He had 2,442 hours, of which 2,082 hours were on the 707. Wow. Yeah, I don't know how... That seems a little weird. How he has so little hours (laughs) on this aircraft, especially because the rest of the crew has way more hours than he does. He will be the one performing the takeoff on this flight. It is a long flight, so they do kind of exchange command throughout the flight. Makes sense. We have second officer... Jackson Newbury, age 32, total of 3,000, 
85 hours, of which 1,973 had been gained on the 707 <laughs> aircraft. Then we have third officer, Glenn Kaiser. Kaiser? Sure. Put your when you want. Age 50s. Nope. Age 35. 4,966 hours, of which 4,678 hours have been gained on the 707 aircraft type. Wow. We have flight engineer (laughs) (laughs) Harry Hayesfield, age 28, 3,494 hours total, of which 1,782 hours have been gained on the Boeing 707 aircraft type. That's a weird way to Okay. Okay. (laughs) So we have a captain... First officer, second, second officer, officer, third, third officer, officer, and a flight, flight engineer. engineer. As well as f- six cabin crew for a total wow. of 11 crew. And 125 passengers were on board. The scheduled departure time for flight 8 to 12 was 5.45 Eastern Standard Time. What? I am guessing what? this is Australian Eastern, Eastern Standard, Standard Time. time. <laughs> Not okay. American Eastern Standard Time? Because the Australian did this report. The Australians did this report. <laughs> yes. Um, Can confirm. So I'm I'm assuming they're <laughs> they're going to do it in... And, and Sydney is in the east of Australia. Right. So we're just going to assume that's what that means. Right. And it makes sense, too, because it's probably an overnight flight to... Yeah. Honolulu. Yeah. A flight plan was submitted to Sydney Air Traffic Control at 4.09 p.m., stating that the flight would occupy 8 hours and 57 minutes in the air. So basically 9 hours of flight. And that the aircraft would cruise initially at flight level 300, or 33,000 feet, burn off some fuel, then climb and maintain a flight level of 37,000 feet. The plan also indicated that the aircraft had sufficient fuel on board for 10 hours and 29 minutes of flight. Yeah, so they had enough if they had to divert or something. They, they had another they hour and a half. Not that there's really anywhere to divert to when you're flying to Hawaii. Well, there's more than one airport in Hawaii. So I guess right. you could just divert to another airport. Usually, usually if it's weather related, all the Hawaiian Islands are going to be Screwed. affected by that. So hopefully it will be a... Smooth flight? It will be a, a, a like a maintenance issue at the airport or something. Yeah. If the lights were out. I don't know. After receiving the calculated... Gross takeoff weight, the flight crew crunched the numbers for their takeoff performance and found they would need a takeoff EPR or engine pressure ratio rolling at 1.85. I don't know what that means. Something about turbojet engines at the time? We've talked about engine pressure ratios before. Uh, and to be perfectly honest, I don't 100% remember. It's kind of about the pressure of the engines where they need to be for takeoff that kind of thing it is the ratio of the turbine discharge pressure divided by the compressor inlet pressure yeah i don't know what any of that means though anyway in the number day to be 1.85 when they're rolling down the runway it basically means that it's generating thrust yeah they need 14 degrees of flaps v1 would be at 138 knots V1 being the point of decision, whether or not to continue or abort the takeoff. VR, the point of rotation, would be 145 knots. And V2, the safe airspeed to fly with an engine out, would be 162 knots. The crew received weather information at Sierra, which advised them of uh, winds from 030, magnetic, 15 to 20 knots, with gusts up to 25. The temperature was 26 degrees centigrade. 
while you're looking up the Q and A. What was it? Twenty six. So it's gonna be a nice warm day. Probably up in the eighties. Nah, seven. Seventy eight eight. Ooh, yeah, there we go. With a Q&H setting of 999 millibars. 999 millibars. Okay. Actually, it's 9.99 millibars. Okay. There we go. I'll take your word for it. That's just a little bit below standard, because standard in millibars is 10.13. Okay. Okay. There you go. While taxiing to a runway 34, the crew completed their taxi checklist and... In communication with Sydney Tower, received and acknowledged an airway clearance. Basically, just gain an update on their route. Upon reaching the runway, air traffic control initially told Flight 812 to line up and wait on the runway. But before the aircraft actually entered the runway, the instructions changed and they were offered their clearance to take off, saying, Clipper 811. Uh, wrong flight number. But you'll see what the crew says back in just a second. <laughs> Radar departure, right turn heading 050, maintain 3000, clear for takeoff. The crew acknowledged by saying 050, maintain 3, clipper 11, clear for takeoff. Um, I don't know if this is an error in the... Uh, report? In the report, in the transcript from the, uh, from the cockpit, cockpit voice, voice recorder, recorder, or if it was actually flight... 811, and then the in the investigation board just messed it up, and now it's forever known as 812. 812? I don't know. That's no idea. really weird. Because for me, it was like, oh, 811, they just messed up on the report. Then right. they said Clipper 11, which means they just dropped the 8 and said, so, I don't know. Interesting. And concerning. <laughs> just, just a wee Someone bit. screwed up somewhere. Something. Uh, who knows? Anyway... The crew then completed their pre-takeoff checks. Random, actually have you help me with this one. Great. We're going to do a little role-playing here. Role-play. It's not the first time we've done this. <laughs> you will be the flight engineer. Okay. And I will be the captain. Great. Slash first officer. <laughs> We're just going to go through the checklist. Okay. Oh, boy. Checklist. Anti-skid. Anti-skid. Is on. Speed brake handle. Forward. Stabilizer trim. Set. Wing flaps. 14 indicated and green light. Gyro compasses. Is on 010 now. The takeoff checklist is complete. Remember that he said now. Now. (laughs) That is is a particular datum that I will use later. It's, It's one of those, like, in the report, it was like, ready, now. <laughs> you, you know, that's the weird thing though because they, they weren't even like lined up on the runway yet oh so why would their compasses be set then well they're checking to make sure because i'm sure zero one zero is a good yeah good spot to check oh it's i probably, guess it's probably yeah. the next thing that they could visually see on their compasses makes sense so that gets used as a point later so you know when you're filming something and you have to match visual and audio so you have the little mark check clack yeah so you can line up Audio and visual. Yeah. yeah. So that's actually what investigators will do later using the word now. now. Got it. And I, in my, in my, my section here, I just use that as entering the runway. Oh, okay. Because that's probably when they start turning when they enter the runway. Yes. So anyway, just know that when I say that. Anyway, at 5.57 p.m., Clipper 812 commenced its takeoff roll from a rolling start down runway 34, which was 8,900 feet long. 
The first officer had applied a takeoff thrust and the captain took control of the throttles while the flight engineer made fine adjustments to the throttle setting to balance the power. Especially back in the early days of aviation, even nowadays when you have two engines on an airplane, they're not going to run at the same power. Mm-hmm. And they usually have computers to kind of help with that. Even if they set the same thing on the throttles. Back in the old days, that's what one of the big jobs as a flight engineer was to make sure it's balanced. Balance that power out. Even if you had full throttle, not every engine is going to be performing exactly the same. So as the aircraft accelerated down the runway, the captain called out A knots, you're steering 100. Those are just making sure that their two airspeed indicators are matching up. Who's flying the airplane? The first officer. Okay. 49 seconds after saying now, or after entering the runway, the captain called V1 and almost immediately a few loud bangs were heard outside the airplane. One at 50.3 seconds and another at 50.9 seconds after entering the runway. We can assume, based on what we're talking about, that those are probably birds. Birds. Birds and compressor stalls in those... Engines. Uh, in the engines. The captain was scanning the instruments at the time and noticed a loss of power in engine number two. He saw the number two engine pressure ratio drop from its setting of 185 to about 155. The flight engineer noticed the same thing and called, got loss of power. One second later, the captain brought all four engines to idle, engaged reverse thrust, and applied full brake. So they aborted takeoff. Correct. They aborted takeoff. This is about one second after they called V1. The flight engineer saw several flickers of the anti-skid lights on the brake panel. He noted hydraulic pressure was normal and saw the four reverse lights were illuminated that the N1 values on all engines were about 110% and the engine pressure ratios indications well up, in quotations. Yep. When the captain took control of the aircraft, the first officer assisted by maintaining the nose wheel on the ground and keeping wings level. He also pressed the brakes. He noticed that they were depressed from the captain. So the captain was already pressing yep. on the pedals, and when the first officer tried it, he was like, oh, it's already got it. Yeah. yeah. And most of the time in that situation, it's common for both pilots to apply the brakes. Yes. 76 seconds after entering the, the runway, the first officer said... A non-pertinent word. Non-pertinent word. I'm guessing it was a... A cuss word a cuss of word. <laughs> Non-pertinent word. That's, I don't know. That sounds pretty pertinent. That's what it said in the, in the <laughs> transcript. And then about 70 seconds, so about three seconds later, Pan Am 812 overran the runway. As you would, because they were going pretty fast. It was like right after V1. Right. It did take them... This was a little bit, a little bit down the runway. Because remember, the uh, V1 was at 50 seconds, 49 seconds, and this happened at 70 seconds. So about 20 seconds had elapsed. The plane struck several sections of the approach lighting installation, which caused the nose gear and the left main landing gear assembly to be removed. (laughs) According to the the report. (laughs) They broke. They they collapsed. They got torn off. (laughs) 74 and a half seconds after entering the runway, the aircraft finally came to a rest with its nose embedded into soft ground and 560 feet beyond the end of the runway. The purser, seated in the rear of the aircraft, initially used the PA system to order passengers to remain in their seats. But an order to evacuate was shouted from the front of the aircraft from the, actually the flight engineer, after hearing the captain say, we need to get out. 
and the stewardesses immediately opened the four main exit doors and rigged the escape slides. Miranda, okay. you're gonna you're gonna like this one. Oh, good. Many passengers carried their hand luggage oh, from God. the aircraft, <laughs> despite instructions and physical efforts oh, by the crew to prevent this. Stop taking sh- the aircraft, so you don't hurt other people or yourself. An actually funny story. They had to bring that back to the investigators. All their luggage. <laughs> So jokes on them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you thought you had you could have your nope. I need. Sorry, I need we your, need that. I need sorry. it for the investigation. Sorry, you don't get your clothes. You don't get your stuff back. Sorry, that's what they get. Why are you trying to take stuff off the aircraft? Come on, friends. Or at least I'm assuming that's what happened. And if not, then my analysis will be slightly worse than it w- it will be already. <laughs> oh, great. It's just okay. I mean, 1969. You know, it, it's the same thing with today. If if people don't realize how the nature of the emergency like the plane is full of fuel for a nine hour flight but you know potentially a ten and a half hour yeah. flight it doesn't take much to light that stuff up no uh, i believe it's 131,000 pounds of fuel are on board yeah and you're just taking your suitcase down the aisle and throwing it down the slide down the slide though it didn't matter a whole lot in the front of the aircraft because the door was only two feet off the ground yeah so you can just hop out though it they did say it did help um people get away from the soft ground the kind of boggy like mud yeah it's just if you're going to exit the aircraft the reason why they have you not it's not that they don't want you to have your stuff back it's that it's an actual safety hazard like you could hurt someone else you could hurt yourself We've talked about this numerous times before. It's just not a great time. Just yeah. stuff is replaceable. You not replaceable. Leave your shit on the aircraft. Okay, I'm gonna step off my soapbox. <laughs> the flight crew either exited through the cockpit windows or through the forward door exits. Despite the aircraft being substantially damaged, there were no injuries to the eleven crew or 125 passengers. All on board had survived. Oh, good job! Yay! Good. This investigation was performed by the Air Safety Investigation Branch of Melbourne, or Melbourne, with the assistance of the NTSB. Yeah, because it's a 707. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, I'll get more into that later, too. Both the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder were recovered. Obviously. Woo-woo. Woo. Though they were definitely primitive compared to what we have today. The flight data recorder only recorded vertical acceleration, heading, indicated airspeed, and altitude. We will come back to both of those in a bit. There were two main elements to this accident. The bird strike and the runway overrun. It was evident from both the crew interviews as well as the CVR that the bird strike occurred during the takeoff roll and at a time coinciding with the engine 2 losing power. Investigators analyzed the engine and found evidence of bird ingestion in three engines, though the only engine to show any power loss was engine 2. Oh, yeah, look, there's some bird in there. Uh (laughs) Some bird in the bottom of there. The 11 ingested birds were seagulls, which are distinctly not small. Oh, I hate seagulls. So it was lucky that only one engine showed power loss. How did investigators know for sure that no other engines lost power? And how did they know when exactly Engine 2 did lose power? This is where the NTSB comes in. Because the FDR didn't record parameters such as engine power, this information had to be derived from the cockpit voice recorder, which the NTSB did a sound spectrum analysis on to get this kind of information. Hell yeah. So basically they listened to it and 
did a frequency analysis to determine that was engine two and it lost power. Yeah. It's a crazy kind of math to be able to do that kind of analysis. They did that on uh, Air France, not Air France, that's not right, Air Florida Flight 90, to figure out what happened to Mm -hmm. the engine. They also did something similar for the 2008 Carolina Learjet crash to determine speed. So, So, yeah. Math. Cool stuff. This analysis showed all engines achieved 110% and one, which is the front part of the engine that pulls in the air, not the compressor section. That's N2. Analysis of the number two engine showed that despite the damage, it was capable of delivering substantial and possibly even full power, but there's no way the crew would have been able to tell the extent of the damage, such as if it was a temporary power loss or not, or if the power loss would somehow spread to more than one engine. And that's pretty much it for the analysis of the bird strike, which is why I kind of hesitate to classify this as a purely bird strike incident, since the rest of the analysis has basically nothing to do with the bird strike itself, other than that it precipitated the subsequent events. Uh, well, if it, if, if, if it started everything to happen, then yes. technically, technically, bird strike, it wouldn't have happened without the bird strike. They would have made it to Honolulu just fine without any birds going into the engine. So... Presumably. Presumably. <laughs> okay, so why did the plane go off the end of the runway? I'm guessing it's because of birds. No! Oh. It's I mean... Because they tried to abort takeoff after V1. So the crew testified that the whole thing happened right around V1. They should have had time and runway to abort takeoff safely. Investigators were able to count some factors off the list pretty quickly. The brakes were fine and full braking was achieved. There were no malfunctions or deficiency of the aircraft itself that would have contributed to the incident. The runway had a good friction coefficient. Investigators performed a study of the performance of the aircraft under certain circumstances and how those would impact the accelerate-stop distance, which is the distance it takes from a standing start to V1 and then decelerate to a full stop. V1 in this case is defined as, quote, the speed at which, if an engine failure occurs, the distance to bring the aeroplane to a full stop will not exceed the accelerate-stop distance available, end quote. For reference through all of this, keep in mind that the runway in question, runway 34, was 8,900 feet. The accident aircraft covered a distance of 9,460 feet. Boeing performance information said that the accelerate-stop distance with the actual gross weight would be 7,830 feet, 7,310 feet if they used reverse thrust. The takeoff performance charts said that for the planned weight and forecast conditions, the accelerate stop distance would be 8,070. Those are all pretty different numbers from what actually happened, so investigators had to break down what individual factors would impact this distance. The crew calculated V1 to be 138 knots, and the engine compressor stall happened 1.3 seconds after V1 was called. A lot of you are probably screaming that they should not have aborted takeoff after V1. Well, it was literally a second after they hit V1, though. Yes. Investigators noted that the flight manual, which was approved by the FAA, states that, quote, When an engine failure occurs, the takeoff is normally refused when the failure is recognized prior to V1 and is normally continued when it is recognized after V1. At V1, takeoff may be either continued or refused. End quote. So that's probably enough time to be considered simultaneous. Yeah. yeah. One second. Yeah. Pan American's operations manual says, quote, In actual operations, a specified value of V1 speed for any particular takeoff conditions should not be considered as inerrant, meaning it can 
it can contain error. Manual data for acceleration stopping distances are based on ideal runway conditions and corrections for wind and gradient are empirical and arbitrary. Therefore, a decision to continue or stop in the event of engine failure to take off must be a matter of pilot judgment, end quote. So it's up to the pilot. Yep. Whether or not you can take off after V1. I feel like it's, they made the best choice that they thought they would. And I'm going a little more into that. The captain defended his decision to abort, saying that there were multiple bird strikes and investigators determined that the possibility of multiple engine failure could not be ignored. The investigators deemed the aborting of takeoff to be reasonable and that the speed at that point did not itself result in the overrun, but it was found to be a prime factor. Normally, this aircraft has a maximum takeoff weight of 333,100 pounds, but there is a weight restriction at Sydney because of the runway length. So the actual maximum takeoff weight was 303,100 pounds, 30,000 pounds less. Were they overloaded? The weight and balance sheet and the load summary both say that their takeoff weight was 302,748 pounds within the restriction. As a former president once said, trust but verify. Investigators began looking into the exact loading of the aircraft and found something strange. Something we haven't exactly talked about before? Sort of. You might recall from the Gimli Glider that either the fuel's specific gravity or density are used to convert the volume into weight, and that number isn't just a constant across the board. Pan Am took a sample of the fuel in the fuel tanker and found the density to be 6.28 pounds per U.S. gallon using a metal hydrometer. Using that information, the aircraft was filled to a planned fuel load of 131,000 pounds. Investigators took a little look-see at that hydrometer and found it to be defective. (sighs) Great. It had split around the stem and fuel leaked in where it wasn't supposed to, producing a lower-than-actual fuel density. The actual fuel density was found to be more like 6.58 pounds per gallon rather than 6.28 used when refueling, which when added to the actual weight of the cargo hold and cabin luggage resulted in a takeoff weight of 309,560 pounds, 6,812 pounds heavier than used to calculate the reference speeds like V1. This excess weight contributed to 200 feet extra traveled by the aircraft. Okay, well that makes sense then. The next part is where the CVR was really crucial. Investigators had to use it to map out where each event in the cockpit happened in regards to position on the runway. In the readout, I'll go through, they picked time zero as when the first officer performed a gyro compass check and matched it to the runway, which is when they turned onto the runway, when he said, now. At time zero, both engines were at idle. 1.7 seconds later, two engines were advanced to take off thrust. 3.3 seconds later, the other two were advanced as well. So they did not advance all four at once. And takeoff thrust was achieved 13.7 seconds from getting on the runway. 50 seconds from the start, the compressor stall was heard, followed by someone saying, got loss of power. And the sound spectrum analysis found that power went down to 93.9%. Total, I think? Because they didn't specify one engine or the other. Oh, okay with it hitting a minimum four and a half seconds after the compressor stall before being increased in reverse thrust. So when you say both engines, are you talking two engines on one side, two of the engines in the middle? What do you mean both? Earlier you said... Sorry, all. Across all engines. I don't know 
They didn't say this engine went down to 93.9% or just the whole plane. Well, even like before then, um, you had said both engines, like when they were doing thrust. Yeah, so they advanced two and then two. I don't know which two and then two. Okay. I'm sure it's just on each side of the plane. Do you know if they brought up two to full power, then the other two to full power? Or was it kind of like just her hand was sideways, so it kind of just brought up? All I have is that two engines were advanced to take off thrust, and then three seconds later, the other two were advanced as well. So I'm assuming it was in two separate motions. Hmm. Why is all of this important? Well, if you listened carefully to Brendan's narration, you may have heard that the crew didn't stop on the runway, run their engines to take off power, and then go. Their clearance had changed while they were still in transit, so they performed a rolling start instead, and they were already moving down the runway before their engines were at takeoff thrust. Okay. The calculation from earlier of 7,830 feet based on Boeing's acceleration data was done from a standing start. Investigators calculated that the crew would have already been 430 feet down the runway before engines achieved full thrust, rather than starting at the beginning of the runway with full thrust at brake release. Investigators then reverse calculated what the effective starting point would be since they had some speed at that point and found the effective starting point would have been 320 feet from the threshold. 320 feet that was not accounted for in the reference speed calculations. Okay. Now for the transition phase of the sequence. The CBR recorded that the engines remained at 110% for 1.3 seconds after V1 was called. And then there was the compression stall. Data shows that the indicated airspeed would be 140.5 knots, and the distance traveled would be 300 feet in those 1.3 seconds. It took 1.6 seconds for the throttles to be brought to idle. From bird strike to recognition was another 180 feet of runway. This, however, was actually considered a really good reaction time, so we'll move on from that. Now for the deceleration phase. Investigators determined that maximum deceleration was achieved reasonably quickly and maintained until coming to rest. But we'll get back to that in a second. One of the big factors that investigators grappled with was the headwind that was used in the calculations. The headwind used in the pre-takeoff calculations was 10 knots. What if it wasn't that? The anemometer at the airport reported variances between 2 knots and 9 knots. All those calculations I mentioned earlier were also done with a 10-knot headwind. Investigators mapped out the events with the 10-knot calculations, and they didn't quite match up with one piece of evidence I haven't talked about yet. The bird carcasses. Let me outline where the birds were found. Two birds were found 5,760 feet down the runway, two more 5,950 feet down, three more at about 6,000 feet, two more at 6,200 feet, one at 6,600 feet, two at 6,700 feet, and two more at 6,900 feet. The tire marks kind of, sort of, started at 6,500-ish feet and really started at 7,000 feet. You got that image in your head? You don't have to. It's on our website. Let's look at the three cases and compare to the bird carcasses. The first of which was at 5,760 feet down the runway. Case A was the calculation done with Boeing's performance data with engine failure at 138 knots indicated airspeed, or V1. 10-knot headwind, level runway, reverse thrust. That puts V1 at 4,730 feet down the runway, almost 1,000 feet before the bird carcasses, and was able to stop at 7,310 feet. I'm going to go with no. Those were not the circumstances. Investigators plugged in case B. 
engine failure 2.1 seconds after V1, 10 knot headwind, the actual runway slope, which wasn't exactly level, but only affected about 25 feet of distance, reverse thrust, and a rolling start. This put V1 at 4,930 feet down the runway, the compressor stall at 5,235 feet, and recognition of the strike at 5,415 feet. Still not quite at the first bird carcass at 5,760 feet. A lot closer. But we're getting there. This led to the plane stopping at 8,215 feet, still on the runway. Let's look at our third scenario. Same case as B, but no headwind. Now we're looking at 5,435 feet for V1, compressor stall at 5,765 feet right where the first bird carcass is, and recognition of the stall at 5,955 feet. This case has the plane stopping beyond the end of the runway at 9,055 feet. Still not quite at the 9,460 feet that actually happened, but definitely this matches more of the accident sequence. So far we have discussed the slight overload, the rolling start, the human delay in recognition beyond that which was used to calculate case A, and the lack of headwind. These are values that were able to be quantified. There are still two more factors. <laughs> Investigators looked into whether or not it was possible that V1 was called late, and what consequences that might have had in terms of distance. If the call had been made at 140 knots instead of 138, that would have added 290 feet. There was evidence that the FDR was under-reading airspeed, so investigators did not have a 100% solid way to determine if this was a possibility or not. The last factor that I hinted at earlier was braking. It's impossible to determine exactly when braking started since the tire marks didn't have a super clearly defined starting point, but the possibility of a delay in braking is supported by there being a kind of start to the tire marks 620 feet from the assumed engine failure recognition point. A delay of about two seconds, assuming zero headwind, a V1 call at 138 knots, and a recognition speed of 143.7 knots indicated airspeed. The certification data used for the case A we talked about earlier was for brakes to be applied 0.391 seconds from engine failure recognition and 1.368 seconds before the throttles are cut. So recognition, 0.4 seconds later, brakes, and then 1.37 seconds later, cut the throttles. Applying brakes before cutting the throttles is kind of counterintuitive, though. It's, it's really pointless. Yeah, because you still have throttles all the way up. During a normal deceleration roll upon landing, you know, what pilots do all the time, you close the throttle, actuate the speed brakes, activate reverse thrust, then apply brakes with the pedals. It's not that the pilots did anything wrong inherently, it's more of a question of process and certification and how that certification data is used to calculate reference speeds. So kind of a systemic problem more than a you messed up problem. Well, you're trying to just stop the airplane as quickly as possible, so... But it's like, it's, when you're certifying yes. the aircraft, how should you assume that a pilot is going to abort takeoff? That's too complicated for me. Yeah, my brain already hurts. Yeah. I am now going to read something right from the report, because it summarizes everything beautifully. Quote, It is therefore concluded that a number of factors resulted in this aircraft overrunning the runway. Firstly, the decision of the pilot to discontinue the takeoff being made after the aircraft achieved V1. Secondly, the loss of effective runway length due to the employment of a rolling start and progressive application of thrust. 
Thirdly, the possibility that there was a delay in the calling of the V1 speed is one which has not been resolved, but the possibility remains. The fourth factor is the matter of the reaction time in the application of full braking, and here the physical evidence of the runway marking suggests that there may have been a delay in the application of brakes. The fifth factor is the effect of overloading, which resulted from a defective hydrometer. Finally, there is the effect of a reduction in headwind component at the beginning of the takeoff roll or during the accelerate-stop maneuver, which would have increased significantly the overall distance traveled by the aircraft. There is no one factor which in itself would have caused this accident, but following the decision to abandon the takeoff after V1, and with the effective runway length reduced by the employment of a rolling start with progressive application of thrust, it then only required the other factors to combine adversely to result in the aircraft failing to stop within the confines of the runway. End quote. Oh. There we go. I told you to be prepared for an analysis. I warned you guys when we were plane spotting yesterday. Yeah. No, you're right. No. <laughs> and now you will get a slight brain break while you listen to this potential ad. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. And we're back. Welcome, Welcome back. back. Hope you enjoyed that commercial. Hopefully for Cheez-Its. We can, <laughs> we can always hope. One day. One day. That's One the, day. That's the dream. <laughs> All right. Shall we do some findings? Yes, we shall. Which in this report is called Conclusions. As it is in most reports, actually. They don't have any recommendations. Conclusions 1 and 2. Flight crew was properly qualified for the flight and the aircraft was airworthy. What? 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 (laughs) Conclusion number 3. The aircraft was inadvertently loaded 6,800 pounds in excess of the flight planned weight. Primarily as a result of a defective hydrometer. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) They concluded that during the takeoff roll, and shortly after V1 speed had been obtained, the aircraft struck seagulls, and the number two engine sustained a compressor stall as a result of the bird ingestion. Yerp. Tasty birds. (laughs) Dices and cooks at the same time. Jeez. Oh my god. That's a little morbid. <laughs> oh, dark. <laughs> they're, just, they're just birds. They're probably charred to a crisp. Well done, birds. Not well done birds, but well done, as in... Cooked well done. Meat temperature. <laughs> they concluded that the takeoff was abandoned after V1, but the overrun was not inevitable. They concluded all engines developed full reverse thrust during the deceleration there we go. There we go. They concluded that the aircraft and its systems were capable of normal operation. It wasn't the airplane's fault. Nope. It was the pilot's fault. They concluded the effective point of commencement of takeoff was displaced some 320 feet from the threshold as a result of a rolling start technique employed from a side entry to the runway together with a progressive application of thrust. So they came in from the side and they didn't advance full power right away so 
they didn't they weren't stop. stopped and then went yeah see here's here's the thing i have with that is it's very common for just to pull on the runway and go and not stop normally you don't abort takeoff just in general from that the problem was it added distance well see that that's the well, thing. and that wouldn't have been all of it too see it was well, well hold on hold on back up so many factors hold on no because i have where was i going with this you i don't know me, you guys threw me way off track here because any any airline, any airline that gets cleared to take off before entering the runway they don't stop they just go on and they just take off which makes sense. But usually once they make that turn, they apply full thrust or they apply full thrust in the turn, which say it you will about that. Because if you do this, you're actually going to be taking off faster than you would if you stopped, applied full power, then took off. Because you still got the momentum going through the turn. Well, I think the problem with this particular flight is they took so long to apply full thrust. Yes. That's, I think, the better way to word that. Because they turned and they took their time... And then they... It was the rolling start coupled with the progression of thrust. Right. The, pro- what, the progressive application of thrust right. is how yeah. they word it. Yeah. But if, say, that was the only... Forget all the other factors, they would have been able to stop at the end of the, before the end of the runway if that was the only thing right. that... Yeah, it increased. wasn't just the fact that they had a rolling start. Right. I wasn't getting into that. I just wanted yeah. to talk about the... Yes, I got you. ...going on to it. They concluded that the headwind component encountered by the aircraft was significantly less than forecasted and that used in takeoff computations. So, you remember the weather was 030 at 15 to 20, gusting 25. So, that's a pretty stiff headwind yep. that they were anticipating having, and they didn't have that. So... Their calculations were done with a 10-knot headwind component, right. and it was not that. They don't know what exactly it was, but it wasn't that. Which is probably about accurate for the given forecast. They concluded that the increased gross weight of the aircraft resulted in the aircraft traveling 200 feet further than it would have traveled if it had been loaded as planned. Pretty straightforward. They concluded that the crew's actions in the abandoned takeoff procedure procedures were timely in respect to throttle closure, application of reverse thrust, and actuation of speed brakes, but the evidence indicates that there may have been a delay in the application of wheel brakes. Specifically, a delay more than that was used in certification, human delay calculations, if that makes sense. So when certifying the plane, they estimated a human delay, and their delay, their actual delay was greater right we don't know if they pressed down like a little bit and it was oh crap when you put some more and it's it's kind of funny that they have set figures when you know trying to plan out a human reaction aborted yeah aborted takeoff with human reaction because that's gonna be well and we'll talk about that a little bit next week when we get to the begin yeah about the the whole human Mm -hmm. yeah just run from the 60s to the (laughs) yeah there's nothing nothing like the 80s with the bird strikes well there probably is but we didn't we didn't pick anything up from there oh okay but the one that we talk about next week is human factor was a big part of it a big part okay so the probable cause as verbatim in the report 
The probable cause of the accident was that, in the circumstances of an abandoned takeoff, the aircraft could not be brought to a stop within the nominally adequate runway length because of an error in the calculation of load, a reduction in wind velocity from that forecast, and the use of a rolling start and braking techniques, which would not ensure most effective use of the available runway length. The interesting thing to me in all of that was that the phrase bird or bird strike did not occur anywhere in that probable cause. Which is kind of weird, because the birds are kind of the reason everything happened. (laughs) But I guess inevitably it was pilot error that sent the plane off the end of the runway. It was a whole host of things. I mean, I guess they had the uh, mechanical error as well. Yes. There was no... Everyone but the birds. (laughs) It wasn't the birds' fault. Don't blame the bird. It's become rotisserie. (laughs) No, rotisserie is a whole chicken. <laughs> they were diced. God, semantics. All right, well, Brendan, what changed? Double checking your hydrometer. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, probably. I don't know if they still use that or not. Probably what, not. When you're calculating your reference speeds, do you ever assume that a headwind might be less than what it actually is? Um, no, because you usually just use the forecasted weather. And whatever's in the forecast of weather. Because there's been times where I've been sitting there on the ramp and I get the weather. And especially in Colorado, the weather changes sometimes relatively quickly. Really fast, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the weather. It might be something like, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know, it's pretty strong winds. So I look over at the windsock and it's like pointing the other direction and pretty calm. I'm like, huh, interesting. And it, it does have in most pilot operating handbooks a... You know, to add or take away distance in landing and takeoff, depending on how strong the winds are and which direction the winds are going. So, so do you ever recalculate just based on looking at that windsock? Well, the windsock doesn't doesn't give you an accurate number. No, you but... could tune in the AWOS, which is the automated weather, and it gives you readouts every minute. So that would probably be more accurate than the the. The ATIS, mm-hmm. but the ATIS is the official weather. Got it. If you don't have the ATIS, the NTSP is going to come at you. Well, or the FAA is going to come at you, I guess. In 1969, they, I mean, they didn't really have automated weather systems like we do now. Like the tower could probably give you weather, but weather changes, right? So, I mean, because of AWOS and the ATIS, everything now is a little bit more accurate. Right, and and the crew could have noticed that the wind had been down or had died down, but given that they're just about to leave on a nine-hour flight and they just got an update on the taxi route about their airways, they're pretty probably preoccupied. Yeah, programming reprogramming the computer. I assume the seven hundred seven computer um, to fly that route. So they're trying to reprogram it and whatnot. So they're probably busy with that. Though there were four pilots on board, and they. Should, should have been able to delegate tasks. Well, I mean, it's two of them probably weren't flying though. Yeah, but the second and third officers are the relief. The relief pilots. Yeah. Pilots, but everyone has to sit in the cockpit for takeoff and landing. Gotcha. So they they're probably just in the back observing. Yeah. So I don't know how, we don't know how much they were paying attention to everything that was going on. They could have just been talking to each other in the back. And for this is totally fine. The systemic problem that. I outlined the possibility of we don't know if any of that changed if 
in dealing with certification of aircraft if the factor of human delay time changed at all? Is it still a set number? Is it... I don't know that, but of course it has to be taken into account. It's obviously taken into account, especially after the crash that we'll be covering next week. My guess is that um, they're probably on the conservative side. Probably. Because that's usually in aviation, you always want to act on the conservative side of things. Well, not just in aviation, in pretty much any engineering industry. Okay, but we have an aviation podcast, so... I know. If I'm calculating, if I have my little chart trying to calculate takeoff distance roll, let's say the density altitude is 6,500, but on my chart, it only has 6,500, 6, I was trying to say initially. I don't have that 6,500, so I can interpolate and try yeah. to figure out what's in between those, or I can just say, I'm going to go with the 7,000 density altitude number, which is more conservative. But the chart that you're using as a reference has probably also become more conservative, with because that's what's you gained from the certification data. Maybe. The chart's from 1979, so... Oh, maybe not. <laughs> good old Cessna for you. Of course, it's a single engine. <laughs> that's true. Teeny tiny airplane, so that's fine. But Well, and it's... It's based on when the aircraft was initially certified. So what I'm saying is that certification procedures have probably gotten more conservative. Well, yeah. I mean, as aviation got safer, we realized the amount of stuff that can go wrong. Probably airplane manufacturers are like, we're going to build in a little bit more. More of a buffer. Buffer so that if someone screws up, It's Mm -hmm. not going to hurt the aircraft. And a huge part of any engineering procedure, especially when you're talking about user compatibility, is you have to have human factors engineers. There's a whole specific category, the whole specific part of design that's just human factors. And that's where that would come in. We could briefly talk about whether or not I think it was the right decision to abort the takeoff. I think... If they would have taken off and circled back, it would have been a better thing to do. I think that given the manuals that they had, and therefore probably their training, they did what they saw as fit and what their training dictated. I don't think what they did was bad. No. But I think that if they had taken off, because you can take off with one engine out, and it wasn't completely out either. Nope. It was producing some thrust. So if they had taken off and decided to you know, go out, circle back, and land so that they could get another airplane or make sure to have someone come look at it. I think it would have been, it would have turned out better. But what they did, I think, was was, fine, too. It was completely reasonable. But because of everything that went wrong, it went off the end of the runway. Being at the decision point, you know, it's a a tough call to make. Because technically, yes, they should have took off. But, I mean, their aircraft is... Not in one piece, but everyone survived and without yep. injury. We don't know if the problem would have got worse in the air. They didn't know necessarily. They didn't know the extent of the damage. Even though the captain only saw that uh, engine two had dropped in power. And when they applied reverse thrust, all engines were running at full full power. But they didn't know that. And he made that deci- decision in what? A second. Like, I think they said 2.1 seconds? 2.1 seconds between engine failure recognition and after V1. He did it. He, he noticed the problem really quickly and it took him almost immediate action. He didn't have time to really well weigh his options. And no, he wouldn't, right? I mean, I think what my point is, 
if he had decided to take off and come back, yeah, great. And if he decided to abort takeoff, great. Like, I'm not saying that he made a bad decision. I'm not saying he didn't make a, a good estimated decision because of where they were so close to V1. It really, it shouldn't have mattered. But because they were overweight and they had a rolling takeoff and, no and, headwind, and, 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 and they ran off the end of the runway. And they wouldn't have known that, right? Yeah. They didn't know the hydrometer was leaking. They didn't mm-hmm. know that it caused them 200 feet of runway that they would have needed yeah. at the end of the runway when they did the rolling start and didn't immediately advance the throttles. Like, they didn't know, right? So I think I agree you got to give them a break. <laughs> I, I agree with in, the investigators on this that their decision was reasonable. Yeah. Now, I don't know about exactly how it was back then. I don't know how it exactly is now, so I could be completely off on this. But I think now when you call V1, it is the decision. Okay. So if if you call V1, that is your... You are taking off. You are taking off. So yeah. as soon as that happens, and this incident were to happen, they would take off nowadays. I would agree with you. Back then, though, it might have been... Like, in the manual, it said that yeah. if they're at V1, they could the, take off. The manual at the time, both of them, both the manufacturer and the operator, were pretty ambiguous as to what you should and shouldn't do if it's something happens right at v1 right and nowadays we can the computer does all the calculations for you it right. knows what the current weather is it knows how long the runway is it knows how wet the runway is you don't need to input any of that stuff yourself which is an advancement all on its own you right you just got to put how much the aircraft weighs and that's it what air and what runway you're taking off on and sometimes the aircraft can calculate its own weight too yep so a lot of the stuff that happened here wouldn't have happened because of the advance in technology that we have now. The plane would just tell you, yo, you're overweight. You need to drop some weight. What you doing? <laughs> what you doing? This ain't the numbers you Are you brought. stupid? Like, no. <laughs> what you doing? Something's broken. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> Something's broken. Error 404. Plane not found. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Pan Am Flight 812. Or 811. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Thank you the for world joining may us. never know. Remember to submit your listener stories today. And we greatly appreciate it if you do. Please and thank you. I don't want to send out another help message before we record. <laughs> thank you to all our patrons. As always, you guys are great and awesome and amazing. Thank you for supporting oh, us. Oh, I totally forgot about you guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks to those people. They're the nice ones that actually give us money. And uh, one of them is named Brendan. What a great name. <laughs> I think you're a little biased. <laughs> Just a little bit. I actually wish my name was something different. because <laughs> <laughs> We'll get into that in the post episode. Oh, okay. Because it's, it's pretty funny. I like talking about it, even though we've already we've talked about it all the time. <laughs> all right, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in with us. And stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your speed, speed up, up, fool. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Brendan and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.